John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is the word of the Lord. As you may be aware, this is the sixth week of Easter. Just like Christmas is not just a day, Easter is not just a day. Easter is a season, and it's celebrated as a season because the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto his ascension is a major focus of the Christian life. What Jesus did in defeating the powers of death and triumphing over them by raising from the dead, he is going to do that at the second coming for all those who are in him. But even that is not the totality of what the resurrection implies. The resurrection is the vindication of the Father over the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, but it also is the vindication of the Son's ministry, and we're about to see today how Jesus promises that ministry of gathering a people for himself will be continued by the Spirit. We're going to look at three specific things 
in Jesus' teaching, again, in the context of what we talked about last week, we'll review very briefly, and then finally we'll be moving on to Jesus' teachings of obedience in love, that obedience is the measure of love. That is, there is a rubric, there is a standard, there is a prescribed pragma, if you will, by which a disciple of Christ can measure whether he truly loves Christ or whether he is deceived, self-deceived or deceived by the evil one. Nevertheless, it is a requirement, and Jesus actually weaves this throughout the whole discourse. He comes back to it over and over again. This repetition cannot be ignored. The full force of it must shake us from our deception. We're going to look at that in great detail. Then we're going to move from that to the ministry of the Spirit, uh, having touched on a believer's Trinitarian communion. Just from the onset, if you don't know what the word Trinitarian means, it means of or pertaining to the Trinity, it is a, it's an adjective. It modifies the type of communion. So the believer's communion is not with Christ alone. The believer's communion is not with the Father alone. It is Trinitarian. It is also with the Spirit. And the Spirit himself is the mediator of that communion. Christ is the mediator between God and man, but in terms of how that communion is expressed or actualized, Jesus says in this very passage, it's going to be done through the sending of the Spirit, that through the sending of the Spirit, he would come to them, not leave them as orphans, and abide with them, that he and the Father would make his abode. And then finally, we're going to look very briefly at the Spirit's ministry and presence. That is, what does the Spirit produce in the life of the believer. Unlike other expository sermons you may have heard, we're actually not going to go through the text in a straight line. We're going to cycle through it a few times. And the reason why is because Jesus is interweaving these things such that if you wanted it to be a clean outline, it would have to be unraveled. And so we're going to look at these verses over and over again in in these three contexts. First, obedience, then the communion which we are brought into by God himself, and then finally the Spirit's express role and presence, his express ministry to us. So at the onset, it's important to remember this discourse is taking place in the upper room. These are the words of Jesus in the final hours of his life, and these are the things which are close on his heart. If you knew that your time was short, you would be speaking about matters that are serious and of grave import. You would not be wasting time with the trivialities of the day, checking your Twitter, checking your Facebook. You would be totally absorbed in communicating to your loved ones, to your descendants, to those who were near you, your friends. You would be totally absorbed in communicating to them your deepest longings and desires. You would not waste your breath. And indeed, Jesus does not waste his breath in these passages. And so we have to see this this discourse as a continuing discourse on the things which matter that he has to tell them before he will suffer, be risen from the dead, and 40 days later, ascend to the Father. He knows what he's doing. As we saw last week at the beginning of his action in washing the disciples' feet, John tells us by the Spirit of God what was operating in the heart of Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. He took off his outer robe, put on the towel of a servant, and washed their feet. All of this, therefore, is to be understood as the love with with which Jesus loved them unto the end. 
Part of this love is his teaching to them those things which they need to know if they should be persisted in that love. The thing that chiefly concerns Jesus' heart at this time is that they would be in pure spiritual reality without any hint of confusion, without any hint of self-deception or deception from the evil one. And so over and over again, Jesus gives them a test, a single test, to apply to the genuineness of their faith. He does this against self-delusions and vain notions. If you have never examined the idea of self-delusion, that is a sure guarantee that in many ways you are deluded. I say that humbly, but the point of this is that Jesus is giving these disciples a commandment to be pure in love, that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if that does not translate to obedience, then your love, is, it's a vain notion. It's, it's just a mist of the heart or a mist of the mind. It's nothing with substance. It has no teeth. And Jesus wants to impress this upon his disciples. Again, these are men who spent three years obeying him. Now, yes, they were still sinful. Yes, they had immaturities, but he was desiring to make sure that they know that they cannot persist in disobedience and claim to love Christ. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, please keep my commandments. It's an indicator. It says, if you love me, if that's true, then this follows. If A, therefore B. It's a very simple and short argument. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does this mean perfectly? No. Does it mean in some measure in which God himself could say that there is a true keeping of the commandments? Yes. This is what a disciple of Jesus is called to. Failure, therefore, to obey Christ must not be answered with self-centered religious works because the first commandment is to love God. And if you are seeking to obey Christ's commandments in order to justify yourself instead of receiving his love, then that from the very onset and first motive is not loving God because it's not choosing to love God in the way God wishes you to love him. What do I mean by that? I mean that God desires true repentance through the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is that God was reconciling the world to him through his son as his son was on the tree. Not that we have invented a doctrine around a historic event, but that in the event itself, God was reconciling his children to himself. That is the announcement of the gospel of grace. This is something that has already happened, which is announced to you. And indeed, when Jesus is asked what we should do, the, at one point he says, after the feeding of the 5,000, he tells the people, don't work for bread which perishes but do the works of God. The people then ask him, what are the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God, to believe on him whom he sent. What is the chief work which is necessary for you to be saved? First of all, it's Christ's work on the cross, but the chief work in applying that 
is not a work at all, but rather a repentance from sin and a turning to God in faith to believe on, to trust on, to cling to, to resign yourself to the merits of Christ, to give up all efforts to earn a father's approval and yet to be adopted through Christ as a son or a daughter. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, this is a, a repetition for you, but, but it's clear that Jesus is telling them at this point, this is the chief work that needs to be true for you. What needs to happen is for you to believe on Christ, not to attempt to earn your position with, the God, with God or with the Father. If you do not love much, if you are in a state where you have little love for Christ, and by that I mean you perceive that your obedience to Christ is little based on these verses, then you have to understand that it is due to your failure to understand how much you've been loved. God himself tells us, Jesus Christ tells us, that the woman who washed his feet with the anointing and with the, with the oil did so because she was forgiven much. Right? He says this. There's a cause and effect. Being loved by Jesus Christ produces love for Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you hear Jesus' words, if you love me, keep my commandments, and yet you look at your life and you say, there's no commandment keeping, there's no obedience, I'm constantly going astray, then the real result, the real action to take is to pursue a greater understanding of the love of Jesus. Nevertheless, even though you are to seek after Jesus Christ, do not forsake the, rather, forsake forever and completely run from spiritual lethargy. Just because the gospel of grace works as information first, transformation of the heart, it has to have an outflow, right? The Dead Sea is a dead sea because water comes in and nothing goes out. It just, the water evaporates and it leaves behind all of the salt. And over the thousands of years that it's existed, it has become more and more salty. Why? Things come in, but nothing goes out. So the, the point of the Christian life, yes, the gospel is a foreign message which comes in and announces to us what God has done for us, but it necessarily must come out our fingertips. There will be commandment keeping. There will be obedience. It will be a fruit of uh, the, the message of the gospel. Jesus, because he has this on his heart, he restates this test over and over again. And here he adds a promise of a greater manifestation of the love. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Earlier he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then, So if A, then B. Now he's saying, if B, therefore A. Whoever has my commandments and keeps him, keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The Father's love, therefore, is the cause for the believers of, Christ, the believers of Christ's commandments. That is to say that Jesus says, if you have my commandments and you love me, then the Father and I will come. And we'll manifest ourselves to him. We'll make it more clear, more plain. But you have to understand even from the onset, having the commandments of God is a fruit of the grace of God. The actual giving of God's law itself is not the beginning of law, it's the beginning of grace. For without the law, we have no knowledge of righteousness. 
And so even having the commandments of Christ is fruit that the love of God is already working in these people's lives. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is a gracious thing to have. And so the Father's love, therefore, and the believer's love in response to that love, that love being expressed through obedience is not the cause of the Father's love, but the fruit of it. That is to say, love for Christ does not earn greater love by the Father and the Son. Rather, there's some notion here of a greater manifestation, a greater understanding that there will be some fruit of that love, and that love will reciprocate in a virtuous cycle. First, God loves his children, and then his children are transformed by that love, and they cooperate with that love by the power of the Spirit, and therefore Jesus is pleased to say, the Father and I, we love you. We're going to come and make ourselves manifest more clearly in a greater sense. Judas asks a question, not Judas Iscariot, but rather the other Judas. He states, Jesus states this a third time, and even a fourth in a negative fashion. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then he says, who, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And then a third time, he says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the third repetition. Something seems to indicate that Jesus really wants to transmit this idea that it would come home in the heart of his disciples that night as he's telling them the mark of a true disciple of Christ. It is love for Christ expressed through obedience to Christ. He says it three times positively and then a fourth, again, just to, to re-impress on his disciples the importance of this. And he states it here in a negative fashion. Those were positive. If A, therefore B. Now he says, not A. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. So if you don't love Christ, you won't obey. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Jesus' desire is that through repetition, he might impress upon his disciples of a few things, namely, first, their susceptibility, their, their ability to be deceived. That is, they can fall under deception and think that they have, because they have warm feelings about Jesus Christ, or because they have religious devotion to Jesus Christ, or because they have attended services, or what have you, because they attend synagogue, Right? That would have been their context, that attending synagogue would have been the mark of a true Jew, a Jew who was practicing his faith. But Jesus says that true love is expressed only one way. It's expressed in obedience. And that is not contrary to love. See, so many times we're tempted to pit love and emotions and zeal for God against what, you might cons- what some might wrongly consider legalism or keeping of the law or seeking to establish your own righteousness. But Jesus says these things go hand in hand. They're not opposed to each other. Keeping yourself unstained from the world is a mark that you love God. Love of the world is hatred toward God. These are the things that Jesus has on his heart. He wants his disciples to know that if you truly love him, you will keep his commandments. And that keeping 
is not in order to earn that love, but it is in step with that love, that they go hand in hand together. So, to strengthen their desire to obey, not only does he give them a warning that they are susceptible to delusion, he also promises that he and the Father will make their abode with them. How does he do this? The question has to be asked, if this is in the upper room discourse and Christ is about to depart from them, how can he then say, if you love me, my Father will love you and we'll both come and make our abode with you? How can he say that when at the same time he is about to leave? We'll answer that in just a minute. Jesus promises that going to the Father, that in going, after he goes, he will then ask the Father to send the Spirit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Isn't this interesting that Jesus says the reason this, the world cannot receive the Spirit upon the sending of the Spirit is because it doesn't have the Spirit. It doesn't have an experience with the Spirit. It does not know the Spirit. It does not see the Spirit. And yet, the disciples are promised that they would receive the Spirit and that he would be with them forever. And this Spirit would be another helper because they already have a taste of the Spirit at this time. The point of all of this is to see that Jesus Christ is asking the Father to send another helper, the Spirit of truth. This, if you wanted a bread and butter kind of explanation of, of the doctrine of the Trinity, it would be right here. We have God the Son ascending to heaven and standing at the right hand of the Father, petitioning him to send the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples. See, at this point, in this verse, in these two verses, we see a clear understanding that when God acts, he acts in concert. That the Father is not doing something that the Son would not approve of. That the Son is not trying to execute his own authority or his own mission, but rather he is doing that which the Father would bless and the Spirit would say amen to. Jesus asks the Father to support the disciples. So the Son here, as loving mediator between God and man, asks the Father to send the Spirit, not to the world, but to the saints. Jesus does not, in fact, later on in the high priestly prayer, we'll see that he's not praying for the world. He's praying for the disciples. His love is exclusive. The Father, loving the Son and his disciples, is pleased to send the Spirit to the disciples. It is not enough that Jesus would be with them for a time. He wants to make sure that they would be kept, that they would have communion with the Father and himself. He is pleased to send the Spirit. Through the Spirit who dwells in the believers, the Father and the Son will then come and dwell within them. In 1 John 3, we see that uh, the, the same writer of the gospel talks about the fact that the, the anointing abides within you. He's talking about this communion that is taking place through the Spirit. God desires, therefore, to bring his children into eternal love and fellowship. God, who existed before time, before creation, existed in perfect harmony, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
mutually indwelling one another, having communion and fellowship, receiving and giving love, being of one will, perfect in joy, perfect in love, perfect without any need for any created beings, perfect in themselves, have now created human beings to bear their image and have now through the work of Jesus Christ in redeeming them to him, he has now brought them into that very same love by the Spirit. That through Christ they've been adopted and now the spirit of adoption has come to dwell in their hearts and to begin to pour that love, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, to pour that love into their hearts by the Spirit. That they have been caught up in the life of God himself. Christ said that they know him, that is, they know the Spirit already by their experience. He says this, for he dwells with you, but that experience should mature that he will be in you. There's a state of being that the disciples have the Spirit in a sense. They know him, for he dwells with them. For a time they operate under the anointing of Christ. He sends them out, they have victory, but then later... At the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts, they are re-given the Spirit to anoint them for powerful works. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says, the Spirit who dwells with you, the one who you know, will then dwell in you. There will be a maturity to what the disciples experience with the Spirit. The Spirit, therefore, is a great aid and benefit to the believer. So often we think of the Spirit in charismatic and Pentecostal circles as the warm fuzzies during worship. And brothers and sisters, there's no way to compare spiritual lives, but I just want to assure you, I love the warm fuzzies. I love the emotions that the Spirit produces. But the the Spirit is not just a, He's not just an experiential being. He is one who comes alongside and produces righteousness in his people. He comes to to present us to the Father as one who becomes mature. That all the fruit which the Spirit bears, he wants that fruit to persist, that God would be able to taste of it, so to speak. That the fruit of the Spirit would be mature and it would be preserved and it would be lasting and it would be useful to the Father and to others. The Holy Spirit comes to these disciples in order to replicate himself. He desires to produce holiness in these disciples. Jesus calls the Spirit, therefore, another helper. And the word another is so important. This word helper can be translated as other words, comforter or advocate or one who pleads the case of another person. If you were in the days of the Puritans, they would call him a day's man. The the notion of someone who comes to court to plead on your behalf, to stand between you and, and someone who might want to accuse you. This comforter, this advocate, is described as another. Why is he another? Because this is what Jesus was. While Jesus was with his disciples, for a very short time of three years, he was their helper. He was their advocate. He was their comforter. And absolutely, he will continue in that role. He will continue to be the mediator for his people. But Jesus says, I'm going away. Therefore, when I get there, I'll ask the Father to send another comforter. When we sang in Christ alone this morning, we talked about Jesus Christ and we called him my comforter. 
So many times I think we maybe think of the Holy Spirit, but in the context of those verses, it's describing Jesus as the comforter. And he indeed is. And when he says another comforter, he means to say that the mission of the Holy Spirit is to be the presence of Jesus Christ personally and individually for all those who are true disciples. That is, we should not be envious of the disciples. We should be extremely thankful for the provision that we have. You've not been shortchanged because you weren't here when Jesus was walking the earth. He says, I'll ask the Father and he will send another helper. Just as I have helped you, the Spirit will help you. Just as I've comforted you. Just as John would lean upon the breast of the Lord, the disciple who Jesus loved, so also this is what the Spirit will do for his disciples. He will be another comforter. The Father will send the Spirit to be with you forever in Christ's place and Christ's stead after the ascension. The ascension takes place. Jesus Christ goes to the Father. He then asks the Father, Father, would you send the Spirit now to be with my, my spiritual children? The book of Isaiah calls Jesus the Messiah. He, he calls him the everlasting Father. The book of Hebrews likewise says, I and the children who are with me. In some sense, although the Son is not the Father, he has a role of spiritual fathering of his disciples or children, if you will. And he desires to give them a great gift. And so the Father, out of his great love for the Son, his great honor of the Son, is happy to give the Spirit to the disciples. And that Spirit is to produce the same effect as, if, as when Jesus was with them. He said to them, you will have another helper. And this helper will be exactly like me. Just as God descended upon the tabernacle and the temple in times of old, so also the Spirit will dwell in the believers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He's talking to individuals who were engaging in sexual immorality, saying you, you have to stop that. You, you don't understand what you're doing. You're destroying the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Spirit would come after Solomon prayed and established and ordained the temple, the Spirit came and filled it completely such that the ministers could not enter nor serve. And in the exact same way, disciples of Christ today are both individually and as a corporate people called the very self-same temple of the Spirit. First Peter says that we are being built together not individually as living stones, but together upon the foundation of Christ, the cornerstone, that we're being placed one, another, one on top of each other in, in harmony for the, to be a temple for the Spirit. That the Christian church, the, the glorious company of saints worldwide, are dwelt by the Spirit. This is exactly who the Spirit of God is. The Spirit, therefore, makes Christ present to his disciples. He reveals them to their eyes, and likewise, he is the one who communicates Christ's life to them. In verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. At this point, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus talking about you will see me no more. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. We can't see Jesus with our eyes right now. And yet he says, you will see me. Likewise, because I live, you will live also. 
In some sense, these are promises for the last days or the last day, if you will. Yes, it is true that when Christ returns, we will see him. Yes, it is true that we will be raised from the dead and we will live, but Jesus means much more than that. He does not leave them as orphans. He comes to them. But you have to understand, if this is only relegating the things of Christ to the last day, how did he not leave them as orphans? They died without him coming to them, right? I believe Christ clearly came to them through the Spirit, that through Jesus uh, coming to them at his resurrection, he would also depart at the ascension. He says, I'll come to you. But it's kind of like uh, a promise that is fulfilled for a moment and then taken away. His whole meaning here is that I won't leave you as orphans. You won't be left alone. I will come to you. And yes, after the resurrection, he does come to them, but then he leaves again. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans without an inheritance, without a continuing, uh, a continuing interest in the family. I'll come to you. Likewise, Jesus will finally come on the last day. He will fully come. And again, the disciples will not be left as orphans. But you have to understand quite clearly that the giving of the spirit of adoption is a spiritual coming of Christ. Think about it like this. If, if he says, I won't, come to, I won't leave you as orphans, he's not talking to everyone. He's talking to a set of apostles, a set of disciples in that room. I will not leave you as orphans. And yet after his ascension, he's gone. And these disciples will live for a short time and then die. If Christ, on, Christ cannot mean that he will come to them only at the last day because those people would have been left as orphans. And yet he says, I will come to you. I think this is, there is no surprise that Paul then picks up this metaphor and calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. Why, why is he the spirit of adoption? Because Christ is not going to leave them as orphans. They're going to be adopted into the family of God. Lastly, the Spirit teaches the disciples and reminds them of Jesus' words. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit does not just come and be the presence of Christ to the disciples. He does not just come and mediate the love of the Father and the Son to the disciples. He also is actively teaching them. He's actively encouraging them by bringing to remembrance everything that Jesus said. Just as Christ was their teacher, so the Spirit also is going to carry on in Christ's ministry. In the book of Matthew, Jesus warns the disciples against calling any man a teacher, calling any man a father, what have you. Because he then says, because you have one teacher, and, it, and he's referring to himself. And yet he says, the Spirit will become your teacher at this place, at this point. See, the Spirit is picking up the baton where Christ left it off, so to speak. Not saying that Christ left anything unfinished, but the application of what he purchased must be done through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, therefore, doesn't have a rival ministry. It's not like, I'm really into the Father, or I'm really into the Spirit, or I'm really into the Son. Brothers and sisters, that is a confusing of the spiritual application of the Christian life. 
It is that we have been loved by the Father, we've been redeemed by the Son, and we are being indwelt and purified and sanctified by the Spirit. They're all parts of the same ministry. The covenant of redemption is being worked out by God to all of his people through each person of the Trinity's cooperation. The Spirit is not competing against Jesus Christ, but rather he is continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ such that it is a benefit for us. So in seeing how great the Spirit is in his ministry, I would suggest forsaking all sin and sloth which would quench or grieve him. What are those things which quench and grieve him? If you're concerned, maybe you think, man, the Spirit is so glorious, I'm, I'm possibly in danger of neglecting him, of having such a low view of him, and from time to time warring against him, Ought I not to examine my life to see if it's in step with the Spirit? And I believe that the writings of Paul have these two phrases, and they're given to us in a wonderful sense that we ought to routinely examine. Are we valuing the Spirit? Are we seeing the Spirit as a, a fuller or a more manifold expression of the covenant of God's redemption being applied and pressed out? If you're, if you're at all convinced or you're all convinced, uh, you're at all questioning whether or not you are truly giving place to the Spirit and honoring the Spirit and cooperating with the Spirit. Check out these two passages, Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. In there, we find two commandments, not to grieve the Spirit and to not quench the Spirit. And interestingly, the context of those words has to do with our speech. It has to do with what we're doing with our mouths, what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're honoring one another, whether we're arguing and disputing. It has to do with how are we treating the disciples of Christ who are around us, our brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, at this point, we have to see that the Spirit is not to be neglected. He's not to be considered as, you know, just the one who produces some effect in our life. He is the continuing ministry of Jesus. If we have any love for Christ, if there's anything that's pure working in us, it should heartily respond yes and amen to the coming of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. We should give place, therefore, to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would exalt your Spirit among us, that you would allow us, by the entry of your Word, to re-examine what we think about your Holy Spirit and that we would see the teachings of Christ as giving us an understanding of his great worth and great glory. God, we pray that you would allow us to have clarity if there are things in our hearts that are quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit, or even in our actions that we're treating other brothers and sisters in a dishonorable fashion, or we're or we're, under, not, we're neglecting their importance, or we're not honoring them as, as other parts of the body, that you would convince us by your word of, of those things which we might need to leave aside in order to give more place to the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for us by your grace alone, for the glory of your Son and his kingdom. Amen.